0: Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors from all over the world. Uh, I'm very interested in this subject simply because we just broke over 100 episodes and nobody is talking about this content. Uh, Carrie Lee Merritt wrote a book called, and this is a great title, by the way, Masterless Men. Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South. And there is a part of the summary that I want to read to you guys to give you a quick little glimpse. But Merritt examines how these masterless men and women threatened the existing Southern hierarchy and ultimately helped push Southern slaveholders towards secession and civil war. Never even thought about this. This is interesting. So it is an honor to have you here, Carrie Lee Merritt.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, this was actually a a book based on my dissertation. Um, And as somebody who grew up in the South, it was, you know, I grew up seeing all of the kind of lost cause narrative about the Civil War constantly and wondered why poor whites, people that didn't own slaves and didn't own land, why they fought for the Confederacy. And when I really started looking into this and, you know, I spent years and years researching uh, primary source records, uh, I figured out several things. First of all, um, most of them weren't fighting for the Confederacy until after they were conscripted. And the reason for that was that simply by living in a slave society, um, a society where you had almost close to 50% of people enslaved, and, and you know this is a brutal system of slavery, um, poor whites really didn't have the chance to have a job or even living wages when you know, so much of the labor force was comprised of enslaved people and so it, slavery actually was bad for these poor whites and mm-hmm. they made up about a third of the population of white people in the cotton south at that time so this was a big percentage of people whose slavery was actually bad for and I don't in any way compare their plight to the plight of enslaved people there's no comparison but you know in many different socioeconomic ways this was bad for them as well
0: got it and so just so I understand you're saying slavery was bad for them, but they were fighting for the Confederacy. Is that right? So is there, can you help uh, help us understand that?
1: Sure. So actually most of them weren't fighting for the Confederacy. That was actually a myth that was, uh, was perpetuated after the civil war in order to kind of bring all, all whites together um, God, in, in a racist, you know, under the, uh, the Jim Crow system um, in order to unite whites across class lines So actually, the people that signed up to fight for the Civil War in the very beginning were slaveholders and people that benefited economically from slavery. So people like merchants, lawyers, anybody that earned their living through slavery. But poor whites actually, um, you know, wanted nothing to do with it. Most of them didn't want to secede. A lot of them were so poor and so ignorant. They didn't even know what was happening on a national level, Um, you know, let alone even have the, the right to vote at this point. And so. You know, for many of them, they were only brought into the war after the Conscription Act, which happens in 1862. And the same time the Conscription Act is passed by the Confederacy, um, it's called the 20 Negro rule. And, And that actually exempts slaveholders that own 20 slaves or more from going. So that's where the whole it's a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. So the richest men are exempted from going to war and the poor men are being conscripted. And all of this actually kind of leads to really the downfall of the Confederacy because all these poor men after a year or two of fighting and literally starving and dying and, um, you know, suffering from horrible diseases and knowing that their families are starving back at home, they they defect, they they leave, they desert the army and go back home. And, and by 1864, literally about two thirds of the Confederate army were gone, just left.
0: Oh, my God. Right. Hey? I didn't even think about that. And so you're saying that the rich Confederates were exempt from even fighting the right. work that they really wanted.
1: Absolutely. And, and even the ones that didn't own 20 human beings um, were able to buy people, um, basically, basically hire somebody to go in their steads or able like uh, you know, some of our modern politicians to get medical exemptions. And so there were many different ways that class was used as a way to either fight for or not fight for uh, the Confederacy.
0: All right. So put us in the shoes of the average poor white individual in 1840s, 1850s, their jobs.
1: It's it's a really stratified society in in the cotton South. And the poor whites are like just absolutely poor. Most of them are super impoverished. They never have a chance to rise out of poverty. Um, There's no system of public education in the South until after the Civil War. So there's no education The children actually can be bound out as laborers to other people, to to rich whites um, in a system that that's not slavery, but it is a type of unfree labor. Um, Most of the men are working as day laborers or either working in some of the cotton factories, but they're having to piece together all these little jobs. So a lot of them spend most of the year unemployed. And this leads to, of course, fractured families where there are a lot of women headed households. kids begin drinking alcohol. Alcohol becomes a huge problem in the poor white community. You have um, alcoholic kids as young as 11, 12 years old. Um, people are are kind of hustled and bustled into the nascent um, criminal justice system. So they're constantly being arrested for being drunk in public or even things like vagrancy, which is literally doing nothing. Literally, you could just be hanging out on a street corner and be arrested because you're not doing anything. Um, And so this whole system is set up in order to protect slavery, because basically the slaveholders saw these people as a threat to slavery because they weren't in the system. They weren't benefiting from the system.
0: And so did they start to rebel against their neighbors or were there battles that were happening behind the scenes? Or was it basically throwing up their hands in the air and, like you said, turning to vices and and, uh, and and I guess bad habits?
1: So there is certainly a percentage of them that did that. And then the other percentage, um, and we don't really know exactly what percentage is what, but it was probably a smaller percentage uh, of these people that actually tried to start unions. Um, They were called associations in the 1850s. And um, any kind of major city, you would have these associations of of poor white men and even some lower class or, or lower middle class men. Uh, who are banding together and demanding to not have competition with slave labor. Because at this time, you could even have, you know, especially in the cities, you had really skilled enslaved laborers. And so they were competing even with with skilled journeymen. And and they're demanding that if enslavers don't do something to protect the way that labor is structured and only keep uh, enslaved labor on the plantations in agriculture, then they would stop supporting slavery, and so I argue that you know not only in the 1850s was slavery at risk from the enslaved themselves, you know, and then increasingly from the North and then the West um, and within the federal government. But thir- uh, poor whites actually opened up like this third war, this third door of um, of possibilities to end slavery because there's something I also get into this whole chapter. On There's actually an underground economy that uh, operates between enslaved people, free Blacks and poor whites during this time where they're trading goods, trading services. Um, There's a lot of interracial sex going on and uh, planters and and slaveholders have no idea how to stop it.
0: Now, the the sentence that I started this podcast off with, it says uh, where these individuals helped push southern slaveholders toward civil war was there just immense pressure being put on them and therefore there was a breaking point and that's what caused the, uh, the shots to be fired. Like what, well, what, well, how did they help push this toward towards the, uh, to- towards war?
1: Yeah, there, there were absolutely, um, <laughs> All of the kind of like labor unrest was coming to a crescendo in the late uh, 1850s. And there's actually a huge economic depression that ha- happens in 1857 that makes their plight even worse and kind of uh, you know pushes these issues to the forefront. But I mean, also there are, are all around the South, there are tons of little tiny revolts that are happening or almost happen and get found out. Um, by by officials before they happen, but you know a lot of them are interracial. A lot of them are poor whites and enslaved people, or or poor whites and enslaved people, and and free black people in the cities, of course. And and so there are these little pockets of rebellion happening, and and poor whites don't want secession, but again, most of them are disenfranchised in some ways. Secession has basically gotten. By force and fraud, like the state governments, absolutely in the Deep South, absolutely is just fraudulent, like making up votes, and um, you know they they never wanted to go fight and die to protect the interests that you know of the upper classes. Essentially, they knew that had no help; it didn't help their lives in any way. They knew that they would probably never become slaveholders themselves. See, that's another kind of myth that everybody says that, well, even poor whites wanted to become slaveholders, thought they would become slaveholders one day. No, they knew they were stuck in cyclical poverty, that they would never get out. Um, And things were becoming even more stratified and unequal leading up to the Civil War in those first few years before the Civil War.
0: So you're saying that poor whites and slaves banded together and there there became this to uh two class structure, right? Rich versus poor. Uh, plain and simple.
1: Right. Absolutely. And it actually is something that carries out um into through the Civil War and into early Reconstruction, the first few years of Reconstruction, there's there's this kind of biracial um labor and class union happening in, in a lot of areas, um, which of course gets that that's a big reason why the Ku Klux Klan forms and different um, organizations of white supremacy to to really you know violently stamp that kind of coalition out.
0: And uh, which states really? Uh, I mean, where did you see most of this? it? Was like Alabama? Um, I'm trying to think of some of the ones that you you always hear of. But where was this right. most prevalent?
1: So I only looked at the Cotton South because the Cotton South had the highest rates of slavery. So that the states I looked at were South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. I look some at Louisiana, but I didn't include it because their legal system is so different. And even the way that they classify people racially was is very different from because it's based on the French legal code instead of the English legal code. Um, but, you know, basically what's happening, too, is you see. Um, Southern slaveholders really trying to expand this empire of slavery and they get ahead of themselves and they they kind of overexpand and and can't keep up with it and can't, um, you know, keep a handle on the kind of police state that's needed in order to enslave almost half of half of your population and then have another part of your population that's deeply unhappy with their situation in life.
0: Why did you call masterless men? The moment I saw that, I'm like, oh, masterless men, that means they're free. So, as free men, did they, after the war ended, start to profit? Did they start to get a little bit uh, ahead in life? Did things start to transform? So, number one, why'd you call it that? And then what happened after the war?
1: So, I called it masterless men because you know, usually Southern history during this time period has been based on only looking at masters or enslaved people. And, you know, this kind of is the, the third really important part of the South story. And they kind of occupied this this they didn't fit in anywhere in society, you know, in a slave society they didn't fit in. They they were essentially masterless men. They didn't have masters, but they weren't masters themselves. And so it was a really odd position to be in socially, economically, and politically. Um, after the war, I do argue that their place in society actually does improve somewhat. They're very real gains especially economically made um and many of those gains are, are made by you know, black politicians in early reconstruction and those benefits pay off for poor white people um, things like public education like I said that's the first time it's being brought into the south with with black politicians with black schools being opened um but also just the fact that they're not having to compete in a slave society anymore right and I mean labor is still, unfree in a lot of different ways, but there's not actual slavery. So that that kind of breaks that barrier. And then um, also I argue that the Homestead Acts are a huge boon to white people in this time period. The Homestead Acts are passed in 1862 during the Civil War. And it basically allows people that didn't own land to claim uh, 160 acres of land, mostly in the Western states. Um, for for a small filing fee, so essentially for free, and and the Homestead Act ends up it gives away land the size of both California and Texas combined, and that's really this this is huge, massive giveaway to both both individuals and corporations. Honestly, because so many much of it was bought up, and you know funneled into corporations. But this is what really starts the the vast, vast, vast uh, wealth divide, wealth inequality in this country that you have. You know the the enslaved that are finally fought for their freedom. They're freed after centuries of slavery with that without a penny, with just the clothes on their backs. Not forty acres and a mule. Nothing given to them. While at the same time, white citizens and not just white citizens, but white immigrants in America are given land for free all throughout the West. And some of this becomes you know the the best um, prairie land, the best uh, agricultural land, just given away for free to whites.
0: Wow. So the moment this Homestead Act takes place in 1862, it's for a filing fee to, you're saying, high up individuals already, where therefore wealth is truly created for a certain class of people. And are they, obviously, they're not on the Confederate side, right? It's it's going to be those who are in the Union. Is that right?
1: Right. But um, what happens is there's actually a Southern Homestead Act that's passed in 1866 to try to include... Both the enslaved and poor whites in the South, um, as long as they didn't fight for the Confederacy, and many of them didn't. Some, some of them were Unionists, and some of them were just anti-Confederates. Just hung out, like you know, evaded the armies at home and just hung out in the woods and the swamps and didn't ever go fight. And so they qualified. Um, but, but the Homestead Acts lasted until the 1930s, and so over those generations, there were you know many, many, many you know, tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands of of poor white descendants of these people that did get land. Jeez,
0: never even heard of that. Uh, What industry did they migrate towards? Um, I'm thinking of, you know, I guess in the early 19 or 1930s, 1940s, I hear of certain things where, you know, they get into moonshine, bootlegs, all this stuff. So there's ways to make money there. But what happens from 1860 to 1930 that they do migrate towards a certain industry or how do they start to make money?
1: Well, a lot of them are tenant farmers and sharecroppers, honestly. I mean, these are people who have worked in agriculture their whole lives. These states aren't becoming you know uh, very uh, industrial or urban at a very quick rate. Um, the ones that do have access to cities are are working in textile mills. They're working in any kind of um, extractive industries, you know, mining, any kind of dirty, dangerous jobs are, are the jobs that they're being employed in. And they're being paid very little, but they're being paid more than black men and women in those jobs. And there's a lot of different ways that employers then leverage um, not only job structure, but pay structure in order to again keep black and white workers from ever banning together and any kind of solidarity
0: what can we learn from this uh because it, it seems like it, it this shows what happens to excess workers in a slave society right excess workers in general usually are forgotten and therefore obviously with ai technology or any type of um new addition to society where there's going to be excess workers they're forgotten right and um what can we learn from this?
1: Well, I mean it's it's incredibly relevant to today and I actually argue that most of our uh current socioeconomic problems and even some of our political problems are from this era. Like not just the civil war itself but the failures of reconstruction. And you know, it's it's I think we can learn that we have to reduce inequality in this country and Make sure that even the people at the bottom have a good, decent life in in one of the richest countries in the world. That that, that is a bare minimum that we owe people. And um, you know, there are there are generations and centuries of history that some people are fighting against um, to to just make ends meet that haven't had those hands up. Um, And and that the South is honestly still struggling. These states, these cotton South states are still the poorest states in the union. There's the poverty levels are high. The deaths of despair are skyrocketing. Um, Addiction rates are high. I mean, just everything bad. (laughs) You know, we're we're first in essentially. And the South still needs massive. influx of probably federal capital and federal programs to really kind of even come up to the level of the rest of the country
0: is it simply because uh in these areas corporations companies are not moving towards them to uh to to build and and create that as a stable is that is that the number one reason jobs are just not available and then number two is i mean i think with the technology and, and social media and all that It does give us a pathway to entrepreneurship. That's my philosophy, is that if you become an entrepreneur, you basically take control of your life. So do you see that as a major bonus in the future? Because of technology, people can become free from wherever they're at.
1: Certainly, absolutely. That levels the the playing field a lot. Um, Earlier, though, you're absolutely right. So in the late 1800s, early 1900s, as as the South is trying to industrialize and court capital and corporate business, they didn't have the actual funds, the cash, the the capital. So they had to get northern investors to come in. And what ends up happening is they give all of these companies huge tax breaks. And so they don't get any tax dollars in to do anything good for the people that actually live in the communities. Um, But the way, the other way that they get these companies to come in is that they they Talk about the fact that the South has really, really low labor costs, and the reason they have low labor costs is because of the legacy of slavery and the legacy of racism. And then they could always play poor whites, working class whites, and black people off of each other, um, and and keep wages low because all they had to do is bring in strikebreakers of a different color, or or um, you know get the Klan out to to you know whip people into line, and 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 they had a system that that worked for for generations, really.
0: Yeah, I mean, even whenever I travel to Nashville, right? You, Nashville's obviously uh, a mecca, but uh, you go outside it, you go to Memphis. I mean, you're going into some areas that um, that that have not reaped many rewards. So uh, this is everywhere, and um, I, I just don't know how you fix it. Like you said, if you're saying you propose more federal investment, but what does that do? I think education is number one. The the way. For people to get out of it. And I've realized I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. There's a lot of individuals that say, Hey, we can go down to the South and become teachers very easily because it's, it's, it's a lot easier to get a job down there than it is up here. I still don't understand it except for maybe, um, education system is a little bit, a little bit different down there. I don't know.
1: I, I, education is definitely a part of it but the, you know it only gets you so far and when you don't have a living wage or you don't have benefits i mean you have to think down we don't even have medicaid down here we we literally have governors that turn away federal money so that people don't have health care um i mean it, it is such a messed up society at so many different levels and the way that it keeps people sick it keeps people impoverished it keeps people um you know prone to the the ills of poverty you know drug use alcoholism deaths of despair all of these things um that that the south is still number 1 on the list in the whole entire country for hmm.
0: and so a lot of my listeners and viewers um you know they they they're they're very entrepreneurial and so they're against like the universal basic income and they're against a lot of federal uh, government programs where it's about getting money for doing nothing welfare programs. Uh, what are your, what's your take on it? Do you think that would be somewhat of a step in the right direction? Uh, do you think that will start to get people out of, um, the poverty mindset? Uh, what do you propose? Uh, I'm assuming with all this research you've done for the, for the book, you might've seen a solution or two that really would work, or maybe it's been tested and it does work in smaller areas. So What's right your no i actually plan?
1: agree with you that that people want to work most people want to work and so i actually think that there should be a universal basic income but for the people that need it right people that are disabled and people that um you know, have maybe be or a young widowed mother or something like that people that truly need it but most people want a job and so when i'm even talking about federal programs i'm talking about programs that offer jobs in these you know rural areas where Beautiful. you have monopsony of one employer who doesn't pay anything and doesn't offer benefits you know it doesn't there's no health care there's no retirement so I, to, in a way to um kind of break up the monopsony of these really Poor rural areas in the South, you know, having another just entity that could hire people and pay pay them well and, and give them good benefits would kind of revolutionize society. And, and you, you've seen this work in the South with like the the Tennessee Valley Authority, with all the the different um, the the CCC, the different programs under Franklin Roosevelt um, during the New Deal. They really did lift poor, especially poor white people, out of really dire poverty. Hmm.
0: now uh you also have another book that you're a part of right it's called uh southern labor history race class and power 2018 is that when you put it out
1: yes that was out that's with uh, another academic press um florida that's a pretty academic book also have one um from last year that's actually got some some really pretty famous writers in it, and not just historians but um even the attorney general of minnesota keith ellison um, who was working on the Derek Chauvin trial that the, the book is actually about the early 2020s and kind of how, um, COVID and what was happening, happening politically really affected America. And so it's just different, different people writing essays on how those early years really profoundly affected them and how, um, they see Americans moving forward after going through such a tragic time
0: called afterlife, right? A collective history of loss and redemption in pandemic America. All right, yeah, I see that. It's definitely crucial since 2020. (laughs) Um, So whenever you are able to kind of break all this down, it it seems like, I don't know, whether it's the puppeteers pulling the strings or whether it's politicians, there's always a a push to have a two-class structure. That's what I realize: rich and poor. And I think, like you said before, I think it does start with education. That's maybe part of it, maybe not everything, but it, start, it starts there. I've been in many rooms. I'm in rooms with the elite, right, super wealthy, and then people who are just, you know, getting out of school and they come from a public sector, or public school, and and it seems like they're being taught two different things. The rich are teaching their kids one thing. The poor are teaching their poor uh, their kids a different thing. So I think it starts with the school system. Have you noticed that after evaluating all the different um, uh, aspects of the South, or whenever you're able to see the different structures of society, we're we're basically given two sets of information. Rich are given one, poor are given given another. And I bring this up because Rich Dad Poor Dad is sitting behind me, and that's the book that really showed me that there are two ways of living. And so I think that is the remedy. That if you start to give individuals that information, what the wealthy are teaching their kids, that will ignite an an absolute explosion financially and uh, in an abundance. So have you realized that? And do you agree with my sentiment?
1: Absolutely. I mean, and I think even not not even looking at traditional education so much, but cultural education is so important. uh, I mean, I didn't come from wealth personally. And so You know, getting into certain circles, being around certain people when I was younger, when I was in my 20s, you know, right out out of college, that was an incredibly intimidating experience because I didn't have all of those tools, you know, to to work with. And so I absolutely those those kind of things make a real difference in the world and make it whether or not you get a job, whether or not people like you, you know, that 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 makes a difference.
0: Uh, and, and I think you have an extensive background. I looked at your summary. Can you just give people a, a little rundown on um, where you come from? What got you into this? Uh, why you even started writing that dissertation in the beginning? And then uh, what you do now?
1: Sure. So I was born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, actually. I uh, spent my whole life in the South, mostly in the Atlanta area. Um, and I was always just enthralled with history and seeing kind of how the South worked. I would go up to Appalachia a lot to visit where my parents were originally from. And I saw uh, a very different um, class structure among poor whites there and among richer and middle-class whites in in regards to racism. And this is a little tiny uh, cotton mill village. And that really got me interested. And when I started doing the research, um, it, it was it just blew my mind that this this stuff had not been told. And and actually, one of the things I'm working on right now is trying to make a new Civil War documentary because we haven't had one since 1990. Ken Burns was 1990. We haven't had. One. So we literally had 34 plus years of scholarship that has not been conveyed to the public at all, um not only on slavery, but on the war itself. And so right now we're trying to rectify that situation. So I, I'm you, know, you can follow us on any kind of social media at the Civil War doc. Um we are everywhere. And if you you can follow me, I always link to them as well. Um, we have a couple of little things like Patreon where we do uh talks by Civil War historians and and hold some little uh salons for people to Talk about all things historical. But I'm also writing my first trade press book, which will be out with St. Martin's Press in 2025 on Lillian Smith. It's my first biography. And she is an amazing woman that most people have never heard of, was a best-selling author in the 1940s and 50s. The FBI had a 150-page file on her. Um, but she was basically um, you know, fighting for she was a white woman who was fighting um, for the rights of black people and for integration as early as the 1930s in the South in Georgia. Um, so just, just completely radical in some ways, but just lived an amazing life was friends with everybody from WB Du Bois to Martin Luther King, um, to Polly Murray, um, just an amazing, amazing life.
0: Wow. Civil war. That seems like that's your bread and butter. You're, you're more enthralled by that, but any other subject, it seems like.
1: Well, like I said, all, everything we're dealing with today, I think still goes
0: back to that <laughs> mid 19th century. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, I guess there's a lot of, I don't, I don't think school does a great job in explaining the, the civil war too well. It's the brush over it. From what I remember being at school, it just seemed like we've just brushed over it and just moved on and Abraham Lincoln, that's it. Right. So, uh, Is there anything that while you're doing this documentary that really stands out in your mind of like, wow, this is fascinating, whether it's a person or an event that took place that really trans uh, transformed America, anything that sticks out?
1: Right. Well, so one of the biggest things is we're trying to show um, the civil war as the biggest general labor strike in American history, because essentially what happens is once the war starts the enslaved stop working on the plantations um, and just stop labor. And whenever they hear of Union armies coming anywhere close to them, you know, even within 100, 200 mile radius, they start escaping to Union lines, you know, essentially becoming refugees. But what happens is Black men end up uh, enlisting in the Union army and end up comprising 10% of the Union Army, 200,000 men. And that's what really kind of tips the scales at the end of the war is you have this influx of of black men uh, fighting for the Union at the same time as you have all these poor white Southerners defecting from the Confederacy.
0: Jeez, 200,000, wow. Right,
1: Right. it's a lot.
0: And so one thing, when I've done a little bit of research on the Civil War, or uh, American Revolutionary War, and you, you find out all these points of data like uh, three percent of people were the only ones who really fought in it and you know you owe this freedom to a three percent when it comes to um the union like or even when it comes to the confederates how many people were actually what percentage have you noticed anything that's like pretty shocking that it wasn't as many or it was way more than you thought
1: um i think when the last time i looked at percentages it's been a while um i think it was like one five. White men in the South ended up fighting. Um, and that's all ages, right? Um, so it, it, I mean it was it was a lot. It was it was every family was affected in some way. Um, and even if you weren't fighting, you know, you were hiding out, you were escaping, you were you were doing something. Uh, and and most of the the years of the war too, the South was absolutely starving. poor people in the South were starving, even middle class people were starving. Um, because planters continued to grow cotton instead of growing corn and foodstuffs. And they they had a naval blockade, so they literally didn't have food to eat.
0: Mm. Now, when it comes to civil war, there's a lot of talk about, hey, we're on the brink of one here. From all the research you've done, are you starting to see any type of breadcrumbs that really scare you to this day? That, oh, well, we are pretty close. They did this, this, and this, and we're doing the same thing. Anything come to mind?
1: Well, I don't I don't think we would have a civil war per se in the way that you know we describe the our civil war, but um I think it might actually be more akin to either right before the civil war or right after the civil war, where you have all of these little individual pockets of localized violence, um, whether by individuals or groups, and um, you know, kind of vigilante or um or just white supremacist groups that are are going around terrorizing. Um, and then retaliation against that, and and I think it's going to be more in that kind of vein rather than an all out, you know, kind of military anything formal like that. I think it's going to be much more informal.
0: Gotcha. But you're starting to see the lines being drawn in the sand a little bit, because. Uh,
1: oh, it's, absolutely! Yeah, yeah. Since, since since the the mid teens for sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty wild that the division is to me, it's the most I've ever seen. And, uh, it doesn't look like there's any type of common ground being met. So, um, I don't know. I just see that, uh, it's, it's only getting worse. And I think 2024 is the year of chaos. So, uh, any predictions, obviously you're a historical nut like me. All right. I think, you know, way more about the civil war than me, than me, but, uh, uh, any predictions for this 2024 year?
1: Oh, man. I mean, I think this is going to be one of the hardest years in our history. And I thought that, you know, probably six, six or seven years ago. And and it keeps getting harder. And the entire world is kind of going up in flames at the same time, which is going to be obviously affecting what's going on in our country, too. And I think we are absolutely devoid of any kind of real leadership on either side. And it's an absolute tragedy. and. I think people are really going to have to go back and look at big movements in American history and draw from those grassroots movements to figure out how to deal with, with what we're dealing with.
0: You know, I used to think that, uh, I mean, what I gathered 2016, there was a shattering of a facade potentially of like, wow, there was either this side or this side, but um, you know, you're either on one of those. Now I see basically three sides, right? And then two of those sides are pretty much identical. So like Republicans and Democrats for years you used to think they were like against each other. You find out most of them are on the same side. So uh, I don't know. 2016 really was a shattering of a facade. Do you, do you agree with my sentiment at all?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, something they're being paid by the same people. I mean, that's that's exactly where uh, you're literally being paid by the same people, the same corporations. Our government is beholden to money, and until we break that, I don't think there is a way to have true leadership because, because you are beholden to that next election, to to your next stock tip, to whatever private money you're making by being in that position.
0: Yeah, I'm right. And that's why I'm always blown away by individuals who enter politics and become millionaires right away. Like, doesn't anybody see the corruption, how they're so bought and paid for? and how could you ever trust somebody like that? So yeah, we need free individuals. We need masterless men to get in there, right, and make the moves for us. So uh, that's uh, that's significant. Um, so your website here, Carryleemerit.com, that's with two Ts. And if they did, uh, if they went to that website, what would they see there? Is there any way to just oh, get updated
1: for sure? Oh. It's probably better to follow me on social, either on, um, Twitter, Instagram threads. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to start a TikTok, but just at Carrie Lee Merritt uh, with one T on those. Cause it cuts off.
0: Oh. Um,
1: <laughs> but yeah, I, I need to update that website.
0: Good deal guys. The book is called masterless men, poor whites in slavery in the antebellum South. And, uh, Yeah. You obviously know your stuff. Seems like you are in the know with many things that I agree with. So, uh, I really appreciate your time and, uh, really means a lot. You gave us, uh, quite a bit today. I know you're a busy person. You have multiple books. So thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Mike. Have a good weekend.
0: You too. Remember guys, a million dollar book will lead to a million dollar life right on.